You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast. I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is Paul Gillieri. Oh, Paul, here we are. It's episode three, part three of our celebration of yield. We've come to the end of the road, if I can quote Boys to Men. How do you feel? <laughs> I feel fantastic. We have a, a, a luminary, a guest of honor. This evening, very excited to speak to this gentleman, and uh, it's all led to this. All roads lead to Rome, right? That's that's true. Uh, apparently, uh, State Highway 200 in Big Sandy, Montana, also led to this moment. <laughs> now, before we get to our guest, I, we have to talk about this this new release, Paul. Well, it's 25 years in the making. We have to give way to a release, a record store day release. That was the worst pun in the world. And I apologize to everybody who knows what I'm talking about. Are we excited, Paul, about this, about this release? Well, yes. Already and caveating no. it. Oh boy. Yes. And no. So yeah. he, 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 here's why I'm not excited about it. I'm not excited about it because I feel like it, 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 it we, it's been out there before. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but let's tell the good listener why. So, like what is it? Seventeen tracks, it's a 17 little over an hour, right? Yep. Uh, it's from the Melbourne show in '93, March fifth, day after Paul's birthday, mind you, <laughs> right? Uh, the packaging is super cool. I, I do like the Australian version of the yield sign, mm-hmm. which I, I think is really really neat. It was supposed to be given away uh, for free. I think the the day that single video theory was released uh, at Best Buy, video. right? At Best Buy, right? So interestingly enough, and I don't know if all of our listeners know this story, so I'm going to summarize it, but the day before it comes out, the CDs were recalled by Sony and, and supposedly destroyed. Okay. I, apparently this, this promotion, which is bizarre to me, how this happened, how this happened. How does, yeah. It, supposedly the promotion w- was not properly cleared, I guess, with the label or the band. I don't know which one. Uh, so Best Buy initially had run this full page ad. And they were they were advertising that the CD giveaway to go with single video theory, the video. Mm-hmm. And it was in that Sunday circular that would show up in your newspaper. It was a full page ad. So you had fans just lining up at the doors of Best Buy to get this release. So Best Buy was then forced to give away any CD of choice for free with the purchase of single video theory. That was what they wanted to do. But 50,000 of these CDs were pressed. Most of them were destroyed. Apparently, rumor has it, Best Buy was threatened with a $10,000 fine for every (laughs) unreturned disc. So, I mean, you want to talk about itemizing things, right? I mean, so this was like a full-scale audit here. Despite that, (laughs) the, the number of copies have surfaced over the years. I, I couldn't tell you how many. I, mean, I think the, the guess is that there's a couple hundred of them. Uh, but the CD is professionally mixed, mastered. It's not the complete show, right? But the audio mm-hmm. quality, obviously, is going to be better than whatever you would have recorded off uh, your radio as a, as a pre-FM show. So on one hand, I'm not excited because I feel like this is this already exists, right? I but mean, a, on, lot of our, a lot of our live cuts from this era, from the Yield era, came from this show this particular show because the radio 
the rip radio rip was so damn good considering it what is, was right. available at the time. So that's why I am excited though. A, there's the, the novelty of it, which I think is pretty mm-hmm. cool. Uh, but also if this is remastered, uh, remastered and or remixed, then I feel like we're going to get an even more superior quality cut. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about, about it in that regard. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I'm, I, <laughs> I still want that 96 boot, you know, fault oh release. God, we're yeah. not that, that, that's yeah. the, uh, the announcement I'm waiting on and hoping to get at some point in the future. But for now, uh, th- this is pretty cool. So, yeah, I mean, I'm on Discogs right now. If you guys don't know what Discogs is, it's a, it's a place where you can buy, um, CDs and vinyl, uh, cassette, whatever. That's kind of just not in regular stores. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all super legit. I've bought things there before. I bought some of the um, 10 club singles there that I didn't have to kind of fill in my gaps. Uh, it tells you stats on on how many are wanted, how many users have it, and what the lowest, median, and highest price is for this promotional CD. Um, the lowest ever was $99. The median price is $269.40 American, and the highest was $500 American. The last time it was sold was June 30th, 2020. This is the promotional CD, all 17 tracks. Um, that's crazy. But yeah, it's super weird to, to have the show available. All the tracks, was that the 29, 30, 30 tracks from mm-hmm. the show? The, the third of three nights, legendary set of shows in Melbourne. And we've, like I said, we have it. I already have it. But I think you're right. I think the novelty... Um, if you're a vinyl geek, you've got a double vinyl and to hear what they've done with the audio quality, there isn't much. I mean, all we have really is love on, on two legs and how one of those tracks was, was spliced between two performances. Yeah, so which is- <laughs> you've got, you've got, um, a, a rare, uh, glimpse really professionally done from the era from a fantastic show. So it's good. It's so, sort of met in a way, but. I'd say overall, I'm pleased for it. And I think whoever wants to get to a record store on April 22nd should do so and pick one up. Um, Cool. All right. Well, then let's get over to uh, the main reason why we're here today. We are speaking with a gentleman who participated in the making of this record, Yield. Um, You've been around for a long time, Ryan. It's Ryan Williams, uh, live from Simi Valley, right? That's it. There you go. Not too far away. Yeah. Right. So let me get the CV out real quick for everybody who may not know uh, your work, but which is quite extensive over the last 25, 30 years. Um, so you kind of became a, a big guitar player f- uh, following uh, the Eagles' greatest hits, live Leonard Skinner record. Um, you went to go work, uh, do your studies at what was it, uh, Columbus State, Georgia State? Uh, Georgia State University. Georgia State. Yeah, yeah. You briefly left to go rock out, right? Yep, that's right. Back? Yep, that's it. Um, and you've worked on everything from Rage Against the Machine, Slayer, Velvet Revolver, Sons of a Pilot, Kelly Clarkson, uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. Right. Spanning spanning the uh, the horizons there. Um, and I want to ask on the outset, uh, I was watching a uh, an interview with you from a little while back, maybe a year and a half ago, and you were talking about four-track machines. 
Yeah. And that, that, that's kind of everybody. Everybody had like a task cam back in the day. Even I had a task cam and try to figure out how to do four tracking and all that stuff. And we even see in the uh, Imagine and Cornice video, Eddie Vedder playing with one while he's in uh, Italy trying to figure out new tunes in, in, in 06 or so. So everyone's using them. You figured out um, or you were explaining to your your um, interviewers at the time on this thing, how you think a band like the Beatles kind of hacked that sort of idea back in the day. Uh, can you explain a little bit what you meant by taking a four track and then extrapolating that and building on top of it? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I've had, you know, a chance to hear a lot of those Beatles recordings and other recordings from the sixties where it was all done on four tracks. And, you know, now we, we think about that and it's like how limited we were. Hmm. You'd be to use something like that. But for them, it was like, well, I got four tracks, you know, because before that it was, you know, I'd worked uh, a, a while ago, um, had a great fortune of doing a session with a great producer named Tom Dowd, who was back in the 50s and everything. And he he was cutting stuff live to two track. You know, that's just how you did it back then. And so um, <clears throat> it's it's interesting that the uh, when you look at four tracks worth of audio, the decisions that had to be made and you had to get live takes and then you bounced him down to one track to open up three more to do other things. So it really made you think about things and how you were arranging them and organizing the sounds to work. And they had to work in that moment because there was no, well, in the mix later, we'll do this or that, where nowadays you, you, you're unlimited and, you know, you can do whatever you want. So it's uh, interesting um, that in a sense, maybe I started that way too, even, you know, obviously in the, um, you know, I, you know, this would have been like 1989 or 90 when I was, you know, senior in high school. And um, obviously, you know, there was more technology then, but it's what we had was a four track. So it made me think in those sort of same terms, you know, and and try to uh, listen to other recordings that I try to copy or do my own recordings and just figure out how to make it work. Under those Is that how you practice? Did you just kind of try and do your own, like almost mixing on the spot with your own stuff to mimic what you heard? Yeah, it was it was a kind of thing where, um, you know, the band thing started first, you know, playing with high school buddies and, you know, mom's basement and that sort of thing. And uh, and I was always interested in the gear, you know, how to make things work like the the PA. How do you hook all that stuff up and, and tweak these knobs and make it sound good? And then friend had the four track and um, it was really interesting just to see if I could put the puzzle together, you know, and make it all fit and sound like something cool, you know? So a lot of what um, it started as was me listening to other recordings that existed, popular things from, you know, back to the sixties on up to, you know, the current stuff at the time and trying to learn it and copy it and make my own recordings of that and, and try to approximate those things, um, you know, in the end, uh, in result. And so that was the ear training, you know, that, let me reach inside of a recording and pick out this one little tiny nuance and detail. And, and that's, you know, I still use that today, obviously, you know, doing what I do. And um, <clears throat> especially now uh, some of the things I've done in the past few years are working on some reissues for 50 year old records. And we have to go back through the original multi-tracks from SDP, George Ever Harrison, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's right, yeah. Older, the Harrison right, stuff right. recently. Yeah. yeah. And so um, really digging in and listening and finding these little things and these details. And uh, so that was all part of it, you know, back then on just a little Tascam Porta, Porta Studio, I think it was Porta 2 or something and a um, Dr. Rhythm boss little drum machine. that's like, you know, this big and you just program, 
you know, the very simple drum beats and sound like crap. And you put <laughs> reverb on everything. It's like, well, it sounds so much bigger, but it's like, no, I still have, you know, recordings of that stuff and listen to it and send it to the friend who I made it with. And it, we'd get a good laugh out of it. <laughs> That's nuts. You know, it, it's funny. You mentioned the Beatles, Ryan. I, I was listening to the, that, that latest remaster. It was a 2018, I think of the white album. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I, a friend of mine's a sound engineer and he has a, a setup similar to yours. And, uh, he, blasted that thing mm -hmm. and initially i had had those those re-releases that came out on cd i don't know like 20 years or something like that which to me were huge upgrades on the original recordings so in my head i was thinking how much better could it really get yeah. and it was mind-blowing you're you're listening to this stuff and you feel like you're right there sitting on a stool in the midi in the middle of a, of a recording session that's how crystal clear it is it's it's astounding the things that uh, people of your ilk can pull out of sound and, and your ability to do that. And, and I think it, it, it really stems from being able to use uh, both parts of the brain. And, and you had, you had touched on this before, actually, in a Absolutely. prior interview, you'd said that uh, you loved using both sides of your brain. There's a creative side and there's a logical side. Mm -hmm. And that if you weren't a music engineer, you probably would be an architect. That's absolutely true. And I think so uh, I guess, uh, first of all, does form follow function or does function follow form? That, that's my first question for you. <laughs> that the, the second one would be, uh, what are a couple buildings that you think are really well designed? And uh, I'll use that as a segue into music after that, though. But are there any buildings that really, really stand out to you? Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, obviously, everybody's going to say that. And then um, Eichler, you know, I love those, all the mid-century modern stuff and just the way the homes are designed. And interestingly enough, I just got back from New Zealand and uh, they got it together down there. Let me tell you, oh. man, their houses and everything, like it's it's the current take on like that cool style of architecture and everything is just tasty and really done well. So I had a blast down there with all that, you know, but um, it is it's true. It's like you, you want to do something correctly, but from my point of view as an engineer, if I strictly went by the book and and like, oh, every frequency and everything's perfect and this, that, and the other. It's like, and do whatever. If there was a textbook version of perfect for audio, it wouldn't be something you want to listen to. Right. Or at the same time, if it's just like, it's all feel and then you got red lights everywhere and things are distorting and it's all messy. And it's like, you wouldn't want that either. So it's really figuring out both things. And, and, and I think part of a big part of what I do is being a musician, having played in bands and having dealt with musicians and knowing what it takes to, to make something sound good in an environment, but then also knowing the other side. So, you know, as much as I want to choose the right microphone and EQ things and get this great sound or whatever, I want it to be something that I want to listen to. And so <clears throat> I really have to switch gears at times and, and step into the other part of my brain or whatever and just stop thinking and just listen and it's like does this does this sound good does this sound like all those records i love you know and that's kind of what it is so more of a, yeah, a feel I, I know uh rubber soul is a sound engineer favorite just because you know that they, today they, actually it's funny you said yeah that. <laughs> well they, they stopped going out and touring and they really started focusing on what can be achieved in yeah. the studio and, and I, I mean it's it was a seminal record in that regard you've worked on a lot of records ryan i'm curious over your over your career what are a couple of records that come to mind that you would say are some of your your you know your favorite designed records you talk about an architect designing a building when you listen to records are there any that stand out to you that you've worked on or that you just love and adore that really stand out in that regard 
Um, well, it's interesting when it comes to Beatles, you know, everybody knows the songs and obviously the Beatles were huge and, you know, huge stars and all that kind of stuff. And they love the songs and number one hits, but a big part of the whole thing for me is like, they changed the way records were made. And it's like, yep. like they started doing things that people weren't doing before. And they were really exploring the sound and, uh, and in utilizing the space. And they were challenging those guys wearing the white coats at Abbey road to do things they weren't supposed to do, you know, which was great. And it's kind of like when you do things you're not supposed to do when you get the cool stuff, you know, listen to every David Bowie record. And so, um, that was a big part of the Beatles for me, you know, and Hendrix got into some of it too and whatever. But, um, so it, it, it goes back then. Um, and then as far as uh, the records I've worked on, it's, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's like when you start and it's all new and you're just like, wow, I'm kind of like starting to kind of get in the door and like, Oh, now I'm here. I'm in the room. And like, and then you see these things happening and you hear it on the radio and it's like, that's all exciting. You never can replace the first time of, being a part of those kind of things. And, and actually the no code record was one of the very early things that I got to be a part of, you know, that, and like the, the third SDP record and things like that. So those always stick with you. Um, back in the nineties too, I worked on an outcast record called Equimini and, you know, I'm, I'm a rock guitar player from the South, you know, I sit there and rock out on Almond Brothers and Skinner, you know, so, the hip hop world was a whole different thing to me. Those guys were awesome. They were so smart, so into all kinds of music. And that was all done on tape, you know, it was, it was reels of two inch tape spinning that they were doing all that stuff on and, and just how they put it together. And it's like, that's always the good thing when you step outside of your norm and, and you, you can really gain something from what, what these other people are doing and learn their process and like, wow, that's really good and really creative, you know, and they were figuring it all out as they went too, you know, they weren't trained in it, but they were just like, we want to do this. Let's try it. You know? So yeah. those are always the cool things to to do, you know? So you, you kind of uh, led me to my next question perfectly because I was going to say you started interning at Southern tracks and uh, mm -hmm. any, any Pearl Jam fan knows that a lot of Pearl Jam time has been spent there um, with Brendan O'Brien, which of course uh, you ended up working for. Um, and I, and I was going to get to, um, the outcast record because when you are forced out of your you know comfort zone i and i feel this way about travel you know going and exploring other countries and other just even parts of, of, of this country you learn about other ways of doing things that the way people prefer to do things in another way and so it kind of opens you up so when you come back to your comfort zone you've got another facet another angle to, to kind of do your thing what are some specific items that you learned from those um, equipmentized sessions to apply to, to rock albums later on? Um, yeah, it's very true what you say. Um, getting out of your comfort zone, you know, if you do the same thing every day, you'll just get the same results. And it's it's always good to to have some outside influence. And I, I read a quote the other day that's pretty neat. It's like, um, there's no harmony if we're all singing the same note. So it's like, it's good to get other things, right? And uh, and and I, I always think of it every song i've ever listened to or any record i've ever worked on it's all little pieces that i put in into my little toolbox or, or my color palette and at some point i'll be able to reach back and pull this thing out that you know i learned in this session or somebody did and just like oh maybe this will work here and it's just like all you know the experience of it which is cool so with those guys it's like <clears throat> just the fact that they'd already had a record out that did pretty well and 
here they are trying to do something else. And you could always fall back on what you've done before and try to repeat it. And that's the tricky part of, um, it's always been the thing of working on a band's record. It's, it's, it's almost more fun to work on the first record because maybe they already have kind of a song that the label's interested in or whatever, but they don't have this history that you're having to contend with in moving forward with a new record. You know what I mean? So it's like, Oh, we had a hit with this on the past one. We got to do that same thing now. And like that, that pressure's there, you know? So with outcast, um, they were given pretty much free reign to do what they wanted to do. You know, there was one guy from the label that would show up here and there and he was super cool and just like, man, you know, do your thing. And, and, um, so they were really trying to do something different, you know, and just not afraid to just try stuff, you know, and we had conversations about Kurt Cobain with, with Andre, uh, about Keith Richards and he's like, Oh, you know, this song, it does this. Like he was well-versed in all that stuff, you know? So it was really cool. And, um, a student of the art. Yeah. Yeah. So he was just a music fan, you know, and, and doing his thing with it and, and trying to incorporate and just be unique, have us have their own personality. You know what I mean? And that, that's a good thing. And that's a, the, the true statement of any great artist, you know, you, you hear a few notes or hear a little bit and you're like, I know who that is, you know? Like I can, I can hear Billy Gibbons. I can hear Eddie Van Halen. I can hear Alex Van Halen's snare. It's like I know those sounds like instantly. You know what I mean? So everybody needs to have their own personality, and they were really working at doing that. And so that was just a, um, a sort of a lesson that would apply to all music, you know, and or an artist. I think to really have a, a long term career and and have their own identity, you know. So right. So aside from the many contributions. That, that you've made uh, and the mark that you've made in the music industry. Uh, w- one of the reasons we wanted to chat with you is because Yield, Pearl Jam's album, is uh, it, it's on its 25th anniversary. Right. And uh, we, we've been doing a bit of a retrospective this past month, just really exploring the album in depth and, and chatting with a lot of people. Um, this wasn't the first time you had, had you had worked with the band. So we're a little curious, you know, you, could you describe the the first time that you you met the guys and uh kind of what was your impression at the time uh but also in addition to that you know what do you remember most about them from that time Yeah the first time would have been probably in 96 I'm thinking that's basically no yeah. yeah basically when I started this year it might have been late 95 so basically my last quarter of school at georgia state that's when i kind of got on it southern tracks as a uh, intern slash assistant but then quickly moved up and then i was in the room you know because everything moved really fast with brendan and uh he liked to make records quick and and he wasn't uh you know he just everything was moving fast so i got in there and um was able to be a part of that stuff and that was one of the first records we had worked on and it was interesting because um <laughs> one, of the, one of the memories i had so those guys were all down. Jack wasn't there because Jack Irons played on uh, on Noco, but he wasn't down for the mix. But everybody else came down, hmm. and I remember uh, we would always take breaks in the afternoon at Southern Tracks. There was a basketball goal in the parking lot, and eventually um, we actually uh, painted the wiffle ball field in the parking lot. Like I I got the dimensions and painted the lines and the whole thing. Like that was a big part of every day. <laughs> take a break you know four or five o'clock let's get out of the room for a minute go play some ball 
So I remember being out there playing basketball and I'm like, uh, I'm new here. Am I supposed to take the ball from Eddie? I don't know, man. It's like, do I, do I just let him go? It's like, it was funny. It was just kind of a surreal moment because a few years before I was living in Jacksonville when I'd taken a break from college and was playing in a band and dude, we're, we're playing alive and we're playing that music out of the beach. And now here I am. It's like, this is weird, man. <laughs> like, but those guys were totally cool. And Nobody played rock star at all. You know what I mean? Wow. They weren't like, oh, you're just this guy, whatever. No, they're like, they're, they're we're all friends. We're all there just working. And, you know, they they learn your name and just they're like, hey man, what's up? You know, and and it's just a um and that was the to to Brendan's credit, he always kept the studio like a really good, positive and sort of safe environment for everybody, meaning kept all the other stuff out of there. And that was a good thing about being in Atlanta because in LA, you know, anybody just pop in the studio or yeah. if it's like, oh, Studio B, Studio C, and they're working, they're going to snoop around and see what's going on. None of that. Atlanta was just the one room. This The band had the whole studio. Everybody there was there for a reason and there wasn't anybody who shouldn't be there or who was a little sketchy. Like Brandon was very particular about that. No extra hangers on or whatever. And so for me to be at the point to to be in the room and be a part of it. It was like, okay, you, you're okay. You know? So uh, it was uh, instantly really good. And so that, that record was fun because Eddie had a, um, this Polaroid, this very special Polaroid that was a crime scene camera is what it was. <laughs> okay. So you could zoom in like crazy on just fingerprints and things like that. So the cover of no code, all those little pictures, yeah, that's his camera. That's his crime scene camera. He took all those pictures and so some of the pictures inside of there, it's like, I remember him taking that one. I remember him taking that one. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, so, so he took some of them down there at, at Southern Tracks. Most of them. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, well I don't want to say most. Let's see. He, yeah, well, a lot of them he did because I can recognize on the cover, like these little plastic figurines, like Mr. Positive and Mr. Negative. You can see their faces. If you look hard, you, you, there's like a little plastic blonde haired guy in the other one and you put them in front of each other and they talk, you know, oh, I'm behind you all the way, you know, and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> really funny. So that's on there. I remember one day I I um I was running behind and 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 uh, had to go out for something and just grab McDonald's when I was coming back. <clears throat> so what are their orders? What's everybody's order? Oh, no, 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 just for me. Like okay. everyone else had already eaten, right? <laughs> Everybody else had already eaten. Jeff loves the fish of fa- fish sandwich. Right, right. right. Oh, fish. <laughs> so what's what's an O fish anyway? Um, so I had uh, put my food on the table. And I was like, ah, so starving, you know. And, and I'm about to dig in. And Eddie comes in. Wait, wait, don't touch it. And he and he gets in with his camera and gets in like on French fries in the box and takes a picture. <laughs> I don't think it's on the album cover, but I just remember stuff like that. He'd always like see something. Wait, wait, wait. Got to get that, you know. And you so know, that's going to be a great. Um, bit of extra material when they finally do the no code reissue oh yeah well, there you they go done <laughs> yeah maybe there's some more pictures around it he still has yeah, exactly that's where all the pictures ryan williams french fries <laughs> <laughs> right that's right so they were great like meeting them and just playing ball and working on the, the best basketball player jeff oh yeah that's no surprise for sure no jeff jeff um he has well, i don't know if he still does i know back then he had bought property in montana and he actually um put a gymnasium in his house, like a basketball goal inside. No surprise. I mean, he had an NBA starting lineup figurines on his base amps. No, he was into it, man. And he yeah. was like, he, he get out there and shoot and he just like, okay, all right, guys, that's what's up. You know, I've been playing guitar my whole life. I'm like, come on, <laughs> basketball. <but. laughs> so talk to me about, about the, um, the Brendan 
and band relationship because you 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 obviously you knew the band um a bit because of the no code sessions we're talking about now we're in the yield era i would say because there was um a little bit of experience with them obviously you had experience with brendan from working with him at southern tracks mm-hmm. and you knew the band's music from playing it in jacksonville yada 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 you're almost like not a fly on the wall, but you understand where both parties are coming from when they're in the moment discussing how maybe a song or an album should flow. What mm-hmm. can you tell me about the dynamic there? Um, to me, <clears throat> and it took me a while to, to sort of uh, figure this out and and uh, put rhyme or reason to this because my first experience in a professional studio and people making records was with Brennan. And I'm like, Oh, this is how it works. Well, that's not really how it works with a lot of people. You know what I mean? And Brennan really is, um, he's not the heavy handed producer where it's like, Oh, this is going to be my record that we're making. You know, it's not like some, Oh, well, the producer's here. I'm the guy and you should do, I've sold so many records. You should listen to me. It's never been like that. Brennan is really like the, fifth band member, the sixth band member, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, he becomes the other person. First of all, he can play guitar, like probably better than just about anybody in any band I've ever worked with. He's really good. He was the 15 year old prodigy. He was playing bars with everybody and just like, they let him in because he could just rip. He's really good. Orient scale at the age of 10. I'm (laughs) telling you, man, he's really good. Just tasty and musical, you know, and just really musical. But it's not like he's sitting around just say, Hey, everybody, look, he, but he, that just meant he could really speak the language and hear the songs and sort of, um, help guide them. But he never tried to make it his thing and he never tried to make a record sound like his record. If you think about Brennan's sound, it really is the sound of that band, just the best that they can be. You know, it's not like he reached sound like what he would want the record to sound like it's like well here's what these guys do let me pull out the best bits of this and just maximize what's going on here because it's it's their music and their you know it's their band you know they got to go out and play this all the all the time and and their record and so i really feel like he um he was able to identify the the, the strongest points and to bring that stuff out and to um always do it in sort of an an easy and encouraging way. It's like things would just happen and unfold without him really um, having to bear down hard. And this is what we got to do. And it never was like that. So like, I wonder then if, if it was that organic, yeah. would you say, Ryan, did the guys ever tell you or did Brendan ever tell you specific goals? Were you ever given specific goals from the band or Brendan upon receipt of the music? So, they did most of it at Stone Studio, I believe. Litho, wasn't Litho, it? Yeah. Yeah. So Stone had his own on uh, you know, spot up there at that point. And he had his his guy that worked there, Matt Bayless. But so Brennan and Nick went up there and so Brennan would always do as much as he could in Atlanta. He he liked to go home and have dinner at night with his wife and kids, <laughs> you know. And he liked to have some sort of normalcy to, to life and all that kind of stuff. And um he was very, you know very dedicated to family and stuff. He was the guy who would, who would, you know, get up and, and take an overnight flight to go home for a spelling bee and then fly back. Mm. He really, you know, was that guy. That's amazing. 
So, yeah. And uh, so we would do as much as we could in Atlanta, but understanding that, you know, that Stone had a studio and they were set up, they were comfortable, had all their stuff there. It's like, so, so him and Nick Dadia went out and uh, recorded the majority of the record there at Litho in Seattle. And then um, it would always just come back to Atlanta for, you know, overdubs and any additional things that needed to finish up, maybe a vocal here, there, maybe a background, you know, some additional overdubs. So. So when you guys, um, when the music came back and obviously there's, like you said, there's some overdubs to happen. Um, and I'll say this, a lot of Pearl Jam fans believe that Yield is the most cohesive sounding album in, in the catalog. So when we talk about goals, it's how do you, how, how, how do you and how do Brendan together work together to take that, that raw material essentially and massage it and mix it in a way that presents what we've heard um a lot of it starts from the very first downbeat it really does and and that was another valuable thing i learned from brendan he's like uh he would say you should always be listening to the record from the time like the band walks in the door and we start setting up a, a drum set or anything and you put a mic on it like it should always kind of sound like the record. It's, it's, it shouldn't be where you just capture a bunch of stuff and like, okay, when we get to the mix, we're going to figure this out and figure out how to make this work and, and be the song, you know? Um, there was always sort of a, um, a sound in mind or an end goal in mind. And, and that starts, you know, sometimes just hearing the band in rehearsal place play, you know, a song, but also when you start tracking a song, you're thinking about all those sounds and where it might end up. And that comes from some discussion with the band, but it's not like there's always a meeting where you sit down and go, okay, here's what we're going for. You know, it's just, we all kind of can feel it and sort of catch that same wave and just ride it and understand where it's going. And if somebody's like, ah, oh, that's not really what I had in mind, you know, I was thinking more like this. It's like, all right, let's do that. You know? And, and Brandon was always a person that would just um, bring up ideas, you know, oh, I kind of feel like it needs to go to this part here, or maybe we just, this is really cool. Let's repeat that. Or, or we need to have some other sound come in right here that needs to be, you know, like a bright sound. So it could be a guitar part or a keyboard or, you know, he would of, often like just plug up, you know, all kinds of little boxes together and get some kind of weird keyboard sound going just to make something interesting. And the funny thing, you know, we plug up all this old stuff and, big chain of things together. He's like, all right, hurry up, record this before something breaks, you know? <laughs> so that sort of thing. So it's just kind of in the moment and it's just sort of responding to what you're hearing and just going with it, you know, and not being afraid to go with it. And then like tomorrow you listen, you're like, ah, what were we thinking, man? <laughs> not a good idea. <laughs> Mute that. That's, you know, so. To, to that end, Ryan, as a musician, as a fan of rock, I mean, what were your impressions of Yield when you when you first heard it? Because I mean, you were listening to it obviously before just about anybody. So yeah, yeah, that's always interesting too. That's a fun part of um, you know when you when you get to work on a record from a band that you're already familiar with and know their music. And so, um, you know, I, for me, like when it would come time to you know, we'd work on some stuff, it would come time to mix, like. Part of my gig with with working with Brandon on mixes was, you know, at that time it was still reels of tape and put them up and lay out the tape on the console on the big SSL console and get the track sheets and figure out what's what, kind of get everything laid out, get sort of a 
quick rough balance just so you could hit play and just kind of hear the song and then see where everything's at and um also do a uh, what we call a mute pass on the on the console so sometimes you would have maybe there's a guitar solo here but in the chorus it's a tambourine on that track and then there's a background vocal on the last course you know you'd have a miscellaneous these- fader <laughs> yeah you'd, so you'd split that out on the different faders and you do mutes to where they would just appear in the right places so do that kind of stuff but it was always fun to so i'm listening to each track individually and hearing the sounds and all that and then hearing the song kind of come together and it's like oh, i might be one of the first people to hear the song this is really cool you know it's exciting and um it's 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 fun to to hear and it's like wow that's really good you know that's that's great performance and that that sound right there is really cool or whatever so it's always a um a fun part and and yeah i remember like hearing the record and going yeah all right there you go that's that's great <laughs> you know what did you think of it compared to no code because you were there for those mixing mixing sessions as well right yeah well obviously it was much newer in uh in no code and i was you know still kind of hanging on by the seat of my pants trying to figure it all out and uh but um yeah by the time we got to yield you know i was very comfortable in, in what i was doing and and uh the the i was chief engineer at the studio then the engineer who was working there who had also worked on vitology he had already uh, moved on to go freelance and everything and actually i just had coffee with him this morning so we're still good friends and uh so yeah i'm uh there's an analytical part of my brain when I'm first putting that stuff up to make sure everything's correct and and put in the right place and and is is makes it easy for for Brennan to walk into and and start mixing and just doing his thing and uh, so my mind's in that position first but as he gets in and we start really getting into it and I'm patching things in I'm I'm listening more and more and I thought I thought the record was just was really good like the the band just really had it together and it seemed like everybody was in a great creative space you know and and sound like they were just enjoying playing the music together you know yeah that, that's like- that was a uh a common theme coming from no code to to yield is how uh eddie asked the other guys to kind of i want you to contribute more i want it to be more democratic um there are some kind of nerdy things i want to ask you about one of which is i don't know if you remember this or not a song called push me pull me uh, there is some weird sampling at the front end of that track. There's like an industrial, like, like ramp up thing. And then there's a sample of a really rare Jack Irons track called happy when I'm crying. That was like in there. The, it's a kind of low in the mix. And then the song kind of starts with just baseline, but like how, whose idea is it to do weird shit like that? Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I'm, I'm remembering that, uh, I can't remember exactly how that, that all happens then, right? That's not happening in Seattle. No, a lot of it is happening. Really? It's going to be on the multi-track. Yeah. Um, That can just come from anywhere. You know, the band, a lot of times, a lot of times things like that are are just kind of an accident. Something's playing or something weird comes in. It's like, oh, let's leave it. You know, it's kind of cool, you know? So a lot of times that sort of thing happens that way. But um, specifically on that song I, I i can't remember i think it it would have happened in seattle i don't recall doing any things like that in the mix you know and generally that would be something everybody would be involved in and here you know and it could come from anybody you know in any any at any time do you remember the that swelling wave in wish list after the line i wish i was a silhouette someone who waited for me and you get the sound of that ocean wave coming across yeah. That's on tape too. We didn't do that in the mix. Um, I don't know what the sound was though. 
which would have done it. Um, it. It sounded like an ocean wave, but yeah, maybe it's not. Maybe it's it's meant to recreate that sound. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, it could be anything for somebody getting on the mic and you know doing mm. some weird noise and effect and all that kind of stuff. Um, Was there maybe anything that you guys did in in Atlanta that that is kind of one of those quirky details? Um, I mean, for example, you've got a uh, total overmodulation of Eddie's voice on Brain of Jane do the evolution. I don't know if that was done on the recording side or if you tried to messing with it in post in in in, in uh, Atlanta. Are there any kind of quirky things that you guys did on the spot there in Atlanta after the fact? Um, yeah, I mean, generally in the mix, sometimes that stuff would happen. You know, where like there was always, like I said, the vision from the start of how it would sound, and, and there was always the goal to get everything on tape as best you could to sound like it should eventually sound that way at any point you could push up faders and like okay there's what there's what our song is you know what i mean it's not like we got to wait to hear the song like here it is generally that's how things would go but um in the mix uh we would sometimes plug up other things you know run a vocal out to a guitar amp and distort it a little mm. bit or, or things like that um and uh, just to give things uh, the character um, that they would they would need, uh, you know, it's like uh, my friend Dean DeLeo says it's like scene changes. Like when you when you have a song playing and you go from one part to the next, you know, pre-chorus to a chorus to this to the bridge, like you want to feel like something else is happening and changing, like it's a new sort of color and picture happening. And so, uh, yeah, we'd often do things in the mix, you know, there'd be a slap delay happening. Like our, our, our vocal delay on a lot of this stuff, we had a, um, any kind of slap delay, like the fifties Elvis mm -hmm. kind of sure. slap. We had a Tascam, uh, quarter inch two track machine that we made a tape loop on. So basically, you know, you got two reels, one's a feed reel and one's a take up reel. And we just made a loop that went across. So the tape didn't ever spool out and we would just yeah. play, play and record on that and we'd adjust the speed and that would be your slap speed. Interesting. That was our slap delay, like <laughs> on the vocals and any of that kind of stuff back then. And um, yeah, so there are a number of things like that, you know, running the uh, drums back out to PA speakers in the room, put up mics in the room, yeah. you need something bigger to happen, you know. So there were all kinds of things like that that would happen uh, in the mix. But um you know, we wouldn't, uh, especially with a band like, you know, Pearl Jam, where they've been together and making the record and everybody was kind of on the same page with how it's sounding and where it's going. Like, we wouldn't necessarily just, uh, you know, eat a bunch of magic mushrooms and throw them surprise, surprise them. <laughs> right, right. So, Ryan, years ago, you had uh, you helped uh, Donnie Harrison on a documentary mm -hmm. and you were in charge of uh, handling and tuning and setting up his, his famous guitars from from those Beatles records. Oh yeah. Uh, obviously we're not not necessarily equating uh those instruments to Pearl Jam's, but definitely curious if you ever got a chance to handle or play any, any of their gear at any point in time. Um they never really brought much to Atlanta when I was around because NoCo was mostly just uh, you know they came down to do they actually did a lot more overdubs in Atlanta on no code and vocals and things but Brennan had so much gear you know so many guitars and amps mm. that uh, you know they didn't need to bring anything and so um, I I do have a funny couple of funny stories about gear but I'll, I'll tell you but uh, actually Danny and Eddie are friends Danny Harrison and Eddie mm. are friends. and actually Eddie came to 
I do um, front of house mixing. Like when Danny tours, I'll go out and do concert sound for him. But he did a uh, West Coast run and went up to Seattle and did a show at the place. I think it was called the Crocodile or something like that. Mm-hmm. And Eddie came to the show. And of course, he had sort of a backstage area. And I just had to set up. I just put another speaker back there and sent my mix. So Eddie could hear the mix and everything. So I was able to talk to him. I hadn't seen him in you know, 20 years, I'm sure, mm. at that point in uh, like 2018. Remember that, my French fries? Yeah, right. I'm like, hey, man, I, was, I work with Brandon the Southern Tracks. And, you know, like, oh, yeah, man, cool. Hey, good to see you. you. know, so we caught up a little bit. It was really good. So they're, they're, they're good pals, which is cool. But um, a couple of funny stories. I remember uh, uh, Brandon had this really cool um, Telecaster type guitar he'd had for a while. And uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I think it happened at, at Southern Tracks. You know, I think it was just before I got there. And, uh, Eddie picks up the guitar and starts playing. He's like, man, it's really cool guitar, you know? And Brennan really liked the guitar. And he's just like, why don't you go ahead and take that guitar, Eddie? It's yours now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because he's, he figures just like, all right, this guy's, you know, yeah. obviously done really good things for me. He's a, he's a great guy. And he likes the guitar. Take the guitar, you know? So that's pretty funny. But um, but uh, the other one, so I got the pedal here. This is another story I don't think has ever been told, but... um. And like this, an exclusive. This is great. This is exclusive. And it's, it's, it's related. <laughs> it's re- very much related to uh, Yield. So they're doing the record up in, in Seattle. And Nick Dadia, he's the main engineer and doing mm-hmm. everything there. Uh, he got this guitar effects pedal. It's a phaser pedal. And it's Maestro. Actually, I have one right here. Oh, that's a classic. Just like this. Oh, shit. Yeah. The Maestro phaser. Mm-hmm speed and balls okay which is funny and you plug in your axe that's <laughs> this is probably speed uh, balls. yeah mid-70s they're great so nick nick had got one of these and he shows up at the studio one day and he shows mike he's like hey mike check out what i got and he was just showing mike look what i got so mike goes oh, oh man wow thanks man thanks i've always wanted just- one of these <laughs> and Nick's like, Nick's like, okay, is he is he clowning me right now, or does he really think I'm giving this to him? And Mike was like, oh, this is great, man, awesome. And so Nick, being who Nick is, he's the most generous and nice guy. He's just like, oh yeah, okay, cool, yeah, go ahead, yeah, cool, Mike, yeah, that's your pedal. So he gave it to him, you know. And so we never did figure out if like Mike really thought he was giving it to him, or if he was just kind of clowning or whatever. But anyway. Given to fly, that's the pedal. No kidding, wow. the, the Maestro Phaser. <laughs> yeah. So, and the funny thing is, on that whole record, um, especially on the multi-track tape, you know, it's like when you can hear just individual tracks. And it's anybody that's used a Phaser before, when you have it plugged in to an amp that's loud, it just goes. Yeah, that's what you hear when nothing's playing. Every song in the record, man, like start finish, you can hear. This <laughs> mic. Mike had finally got his cool phaser he loved and he wanted to put it everywhere. So <laughs> given a fly, there you go. It's a maestro. If you want to sound like that, go buy one of these because that's well, the phasers. <laughs> that that is awesome. And you know what? I, I'm learning, Paul, that the guys in Pearl Jam know how to get you to give them something. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> oh, no, thanks. I, I, I didn't know. It's playing dumb. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, it's like, ha, I got that <laughs> classic pedal. Right. <laughs> Right. Very, very conniving. Right. No, they, uh, 
the guys were more than happy to like, you know, because they, they understand like, oh, these guys are, you know, we, we get to work on their records. They trust us with these records and it's it's good for us and, and the whole thing. And they're good dudes. So, yeah, go ahead. It's fine. Well, that all, you know. Unfortunately, Southern Tracks uh, closed um, yeah. and it was demolished uh, over a decade ago. Um, demolished about three months ago, finally. Oh, really? Oh, is, really? Is that soon? Uh, three months ago. It, it sat uh, sort of empty for a long time. The land was sold but nothing happened with everything the building just went in disarray i I, you know i went back at one point and and drove through and it was just like i was kind of shocked at the to see it like that you Mm -hmm. know knowing how much history i had there and how many great records were it was kind of sad but just knowing that it was you know but so kind of i'm kind of glad it was finally torn down after seeing it the way it was Mm -hmm. yeah just put it out of its misery at that point right exactly exactly. it was in bad shape so what would you say then you know and it had a really good run and there were a lot of good records made there or mixed and, and mixed there, uh, obviously including some Pearl Jam ones. What are your favorite memories from working there? Um, you know, it was, it was kind of, um, aside from just the work, it was just such a comfortable and easygoing place, you know, and a nice place to make a record. I mean, obviously I learned so much there, and at that time, too, when there was off time, I got to just go in. I mean, right as I'm starting out and just figuring out how to, you know, make everybody else's sessions work and just watching as much as I can and learning and soaking it up, I got to go in and just, I get to plug in a Norman 47. I get to go through mm-hmm. it and leave an 1176 compressor and 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 record my own band and all this kind of stuff and make <laughs> It's like, it's fun to still listen to that kind of stuff, but that's really where I, I cut my teeth and just learned how to do all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and really the essence of the place was the owner, Mike Clark. So the, the studio had started, was built in 84 as part of the Lowry Publishing Group. And Lowry had like loads of big artists in the South, you know, um, um, he had, you know, Ray Stevens, Jerry Reed, uh, BJ Thomas, you know, they were all people who he published and late in the 80s it became more of a commercial venture the studio and but mike was the guy who ran it and figured it out and once brendan had success in los angeles and decided he didn't want to be in los angeles anymore he wanted to be back in atlanta and try to make records there mike was the guy who was like i'll get whatever you need here and we'll make it work you know and wow. that gave brendan the confidence to move back so he's a mike was a very big part of the picture of of the whole thing and and all of those records and it was him just sort of um, making a, a very comfortable home for everybody. And look, all the bands, you know, everybody, Eddie and everybody who ever went down, hung out with Mike and loved Mike, you know. And uh, so he was he was such a big part of it. And it was a great place to come up because it was such a um, a good sort of positive environment. And it never was this sort of... Uh, super stressful cutthroat sort of thing like you'd hear maybe was happening in LA and whatever. Now we had our own thing there, you know what I mean? So, so Ryan question for you, um, favorite song for you off yield. And is it the same song for Ryan Williams, musician and fan of rock as it is for Ryan Williams, sound engineer? It's well, that's all the same thing in the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, because, um, I have to get away from a record for a bit. Uh-huh. Anything I've worked on, especially if I've engineered mixed it, you know, I, I have to take a step back for a while and not listen to it because I'm so far inside of it. It's like, 
I hear a guitar and it's like, oh yeah, that's the day that dude was arguing with his wife. <laughs> and, like, you know, their lives, like our lives are in yeah. this music, you know, because we're in the studio working, but our lives are happening around us, you know? So right, right. that's in every record I've ever worked on. So I always hear that for a while and it takes a minute to step away, but I'd say probably um, Given to Fly is my my favorite. It It just... Man, when that chorus just opens up, it just blows up and it's big and it has such a feeling, you know, to it. Mm-hmm. That and um in in hiding, maybe. Good choice. Yeah, that's really good. And I remember just the, the guitar sounds and stuff in that. It's like I remember just going, I'm gonna look at the track sheet. What is that? What is that guitar right there? <laughs> so, uh, Mike had got a um a tweed twin, like a, a tweed fender twin, which is you know, Keith Richards is famous for for years and uh like, that sounds killer, you know. So just even the nuts and bolts parts, you know, I would I would get into certain guitar sounds or you know parts or whatever, but um, but definitely as as a song though, I like giving to fly a lot. So. Well, like you mentioned before, you just got back from New Zealand. You were working with your friends in Sons of a Pilots. Um, is there any uh, fun new info on those guys or anything that you're working on next that you're excited about? Yeah, I mean. It's funny. I just um, I've known those guys since the 1900s. Um, I, uh, started with them. Starting started with them on Tiny Music, and uh, same kind of thing. Just hit it off and been good friends ever since. And so uh, I've been working with them for several years, uh, doing records, you know, studio side. And just last summer, they had asked, "Hey, you know, we need a monitor guy, you know, on the you know road. You want to go out?" And I'm like, after the pandemic of sitting home for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I want to go travel. So I've been all over. So New Zealand recently, we went to Portugal last year. So lots of great travel. And then, you know, just, you know, make stuff sound good and on the stage. Yeah. Pretty fun. So in the past couple of years, though, um, once the the lockdown sort of happened, um, of course, we were all just, you know, sitting alone in our living rooms for a while. But then we we started making music. And I did a record with Dean um with a nashville guitarist named tom bukovac and they call oh man me. tom is amazing oh you know tom so we did, we did oh. a band that, the band's called trip the witch but it's mostly instrumental we had one vocal I had that record okay one vocal yeah. one song and it's john anderson from yes we're like let's go along let's see if we can get him and he's like yeah i'll do it so so that was exciting and then i uh, did a solo record with robert DeLeo as well and he did oh. more, uh, his first solo record and did some acoustic you know based material that's real 60s and 70s influence, you know, songwriter stuff. So that's what I've been doing with them. And uh, yeah, that's fun. awesome. Yeah, the, the Tom, I didn't know about the Tom thing. He is like the session guy and he is so oh. incredible. He, he does a YouTube channel called Homeschooling and yep. he just like, he blows my mind with his theory. Hey, so that's how I found him before he even called it homeschooling. I was sending videos to Dean and Dean's like, man, this guy's great. So I wound up finding an email address for him and emailed him and uh, <laughs> said, oh, by the way, my friend Dean, who plays in STP and he hit me right back. Oh, I love that band, you know? And so we made a connection. It's like, let's make some music. So that's awesome. Very cool. Well, Ryan, I got to say, man, this has been a, an absolute pleasure to get hey. your insight from a time of our favorite band that uh, is both got a little bit of mystery to it, but also there's so much good stuff that came out of it. And to kind of get your perspective on how that all came to be has been fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yep. It was a real treat to get to work on that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, no doubt the um, second half of the 90s when I started there, you know, it was an exciting time for music. And I was I feel very fortunate to have been able to be in the room and be a part of that and, and learn so much from all of these guys. So. Well, we appreciate it. Ryan Williams, audio engineer, uh, mixing engineer from Yield. Uh, thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Pleasure. All right. Ryan is a 
a, a an encyclopedia of the time the band had between 96 and 98 uh, down there at Southern Tracks, which unfortunately is no longer with us. It sucks. Um, but so many good records have come out of there, obviously, including No Code and Yield. So uh, thank you for him for joining us. And uh, we got to move on now, to, though, to our live. Nope, just kidding. We got to move on now to our lyric of the week. All right, this week, um, I said last week that we we kind of finished what was available from the Yield era um, in so much as songs that obviously have lyrics and songs that were also played live. I mean, Happy When I'm Crying, we can't really do. Whale Song, we can't really do. Um, Red Dot, we're not going to do. Uh, even if there wasn't a live version, I don't know that we would do it. But um, there is a song that I think, well, actually, Paul, it was your, it was your suggestion, puts a nice little punctuation mark on the yield era from our point of view with this little um thing that we do with live and, and lyric um and that is the most famous single the band has ever put out that's last kiss when i woke up the ring was pouring Paul, last kiss, brief history. Wayne Cochran and a few friends are in Georgia. They write and record this thing. Only Wayne's name is on the is on the vinyl 45. For whatever reason, they record, I think, three or four more versions over the next few years. None of them really take off. Eventually, J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers record it. Moderate success. They get into some weird car accident where like one of the guys dies, other guys kind of limp on and still continue to perform it it kind of falls by the wayside then a canadian band called wednesday cuts a version of it in 1971 and it does okay and then eddie's looking around an antique vinyl shop in 98 finds this brings it to the boys they go yeah we should do something with this they record it at a sound check spend a few grand to master it and off it goes onto a Kosovo refugee benefit album. It blows up on radio unbeknownst to anybody in the band. And they it's forced their hand to make a single out of it. Here we are last kiss. It's been played how many times? I don't even know. Paul. Uh, look, look. <laughs> a lot of you listening probably thought, and perhaps some of you may still think I did for that, that, that it, it was a Pearl Jam song. Yeah. And uh, it, look, it's on the greatest hits album, and it's Lost the Dogs. only. That's what I'm one? saying. It, I know. So it, you look at it that when it's like, well, it's just as much a Pearl Jam song, I think, at this point as anything else, uh, in a lot of ways. Look, I grew up on oldies, so I, I had known this song for a long time. So when I saw Last Kiss as a title online, I remember thinking, I wonder if that's the same like Last Kiss, like <laughs> the, the 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 old uh, 
the old one, right? And then I'm listening to him like, oh, wow, it, it is actually the, the, the same one. So I thought they did a fantastic job of it. Uh, it. It was one of my favorite oldies at the time. A big, big fan of that song. So I was pretty excited about. It. Never in my wildest dreams that I think it would take off the way that it did. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm to this day, I remain just perplexed at how how it was received in 1998, 1999. It, it's it's pretty pretty astounding to think that a cover of of, of a 50s style pop, you know, early 60s style pop song would resonate with so many fans, especially, you know, in, in that, that like tail end of the grunge era. Mm. So that being said though, I mean, it, it's fantastic song. And, uh, you know, it, what's weird about the song is I guess for whatever reason, and this is so morbid, but at the time in the early sixties, there were a lot of like teen death, teen tragedy songs yeah. being written. And I mean, to really, obviously, if, if you didn't know, and this is essentially Wayne writing about, I think, he, I think he took a real life incident and kind of molded it a little bit where, you know, two young lovers driving down the road, see something in the road, has to swerve to avoid it, crashes the car, wakes up, he's bleeding, looks and finds his girlfriend. She's on the cusp of death and she asks him to kiss him one, one last time, kiss her one last time. And he does. And that's the story. But like, yeah, why, <laughs> why? Was that such a big thing back then? And I wonder if people who were listening to the Pearl Jam version in the late 90s, early 2000s, really took the time to listen to these lyrics, or if it was kind of like a, this is a lovely little ditty and, and kind of got almost lost in the music, a la Evenflow, and didn't really think about, this is dark. Good Lord. Look, it it, it is dark. It's a very, very dark song. Um but I also think that, that there's a there's a very catchy quality to it. Oh my god! Of course, you know what I mean. Really, really catchy. Uh, lyrically speaking, I, I think it it because of its its macabre feel to it. I think that that might be one of the reasons why listening to Pearl Jam it kind of works uh, be, because there's a, a lot of dark uh, qualities sometimes to Eddie's Eddie's lyrics. So in many ways, this could have very easily been a Pearl Jam song. You know what I mean? Uh, that it, it kind of, and, and you got to remember. I mean, this was it wasn't on off, on the heels of a song like Better Man, but I mean, we had seen Pearl Jam do pop before with a song like Better Man, pop rock, and it was a smashing mm-hmm. success. True. So, in a lot of ways, the stage had already been set for this. So, in some ways, you could say, "Well, wh- why are we even surprised?" Uh, but I think ultimately, it makes a lot more sense when when, when you look at what Pearl Jam was able to do with it. Uh, incredibly popular incredibly well done highest party uh, single I, right yeah i mean it was uh it's only three and a half what three minutes and 16 seconds long the reception was was huge i think it uh it did very very well i think in in the u.s it peaked it was their highest peaking song on the billboard top 100 was it, it was mean? number four on the top 40 mainstream mm. and number five on billboard's mainstream rock tracks yeah. chart two on billboard modern rock tracks chart there you go. Certified gold, man. So certified gold. You know, it's funny. You, you talk about a pop song that's also macabre. Are you aware or and or like the band Ghost? Uh, not. No, it's not coming to mind actually. So there, the, the, it's basically one guy with a bunch of musicians as like studio guys that kind of go with him. But he basically writes everything. He's Swedish, and mm. they have they have a relatively new album out from last year, and there are they're a ton of fun. It's like. It's poppy. It's sort of operatic. It's sort of heavy metal almost. 
Um, but it's got a very pop appeal to it. And all the songs are like cloaked in um, ma- macabre stuff. There's literally a song called Dance Macabre. It's huh. super fun. And this kind of feel like I, if the, any band now was going to redo it again, now 25 years after the Pearl Jam did it, I wouldn't be surprised if Ghost did it. If you guys are Ghost fans out there, you know what I'm talking about. Anybody who's not a Ghost fan, go check them out. They're fun. Um, but yeah, this song is, to this day, I think people are a little divisive over it because it's like, yeah, it, man, it's damn catchy and poppy. and But at the same time, I, be, I feel like most people have heard it a couple of times. And yeah. they're like, oh, man, that's three minutes. That could be MFC or something like that. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> they got to turn around and play one to the back. So speaking of playing one to the back, we got to take a listen to the best live cut of this. Some play. I, I, I would say I would tell you how many times it's been played, but uh, something's wrong with our favorite uh, stats website, so I can't go check it out. Uh, but I'm going to guess it's uh, over 100 times. And uh, let's go do that now with our live cut of the week. Ready? All right, live cut of the week. Last kiss. Where and when, Paul? September 16th, 1998 in Mansfield.
So the first thing I I thought of, or the first thing I felt when when the, when this started for me was the pace. Mm. The pace is lovely. It's so much yeah. slower than than most other performances of this song. It's probably a touch slower than the, than the recording, and I love it. I don't know. I, how I, I love it. Well, you know, you remember Untitled. Mm-hmm. Throw your arms around me, soldier of love. This was kind of an interesting era where you had a lot of songs that are all in the same vein. And I always thought that throw your arms around me and untitled had a nice slower pace to them. And I, I thought that last kiss for some reason was sped up for some reason when they played it live from time to time. And this one just kind of seemed to hit the sweet spot with it. Eddie does some interesting things lyrically with it too. I think at one point he, he replaces baby with brother I think towards the end, which I thought was, was interesting. Um, well, and to your point, he replaces the word her with him three times. Yeah. So I, 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 I like you talking about, <laughs> I, I just, I like the fact that he, he really kind of added a little bit more of a twist to it. So it kind of, it, it made it feel like it made it feel even more like a Pearl Jam song at that point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and less like a cover. So it's always been a version that I thought stood out for, for those reasons. And uh, I think that the crowd doing the claps in time. Yes, that was key. <laughs> really, I mean, listen, Mansfield has gotten a ton of great shows over the years. And half of the reason why is because of them. Yeah. Whoever's, yeah. if you went to the, if you were in the Northeast New England and went to those shows, 98, 2000, 2003, hello, uh, always great shows. And there's a really great 50s style kind of accent guitar thing that mm-hmm. that little sweet picking thing i can't tell who's doing it on the on the version that we have it's it's not mono per se but i can't tell left to right who it is um it's just lovely as that 50s flair to it uh, early 60s flair so great great choice i love it september 16th 98 mansfield massachusetts uh there it is guys that was our celebration of yield three episodes for you to to comb over to reminisce to think about what this album means to you obviously the band agrees because of all the things that they're putting out by the way they put out a wide a wide format uh picture of the yield photo on their website so that, that thing sold out in like five minutes um obviously the giveaway single coming out in record store i mean they are putting out the stops for this thing um i think as much as they they are willing to do right now and it, yeah. it's great it's great so that's cool um thank you Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening, for telling your friends, for, for feeding the algorithm if you have. Uh, for our patrons, we, we love you bonus. We love you extra um, for supporting the show. Uh, the uh, ordering is open for the new t-shirt. If you like Tivoli, you like this one. And um, yeah, that's that's all we got for this episode, Paul. I think uh, we acquitted ourselves well on this one. I, I feel like it's been a, ni- a nice run and it is now time to yield to new content yeah. moving you forward. See, you see, <laughs> he knows how to put the pin on it. All right, gang. Well, we appreciate it again, and we'll see you here next week. And until we do, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. <laughs>